Welcome back to episode five about growing the good Christian girl. And I am so excited for this episode. This is all about the question, is there a biblical case for same-sex relationships? We are actually going to talk with the author of this book, Matthew Fines, the author of God and the Gay Christian, the Biblical Case for Same-Sex Relationships. If you're anything like me, I grew up thinking, I know what the Bible says about this. There is no biblical case for this. Like the Bible is so clear. But over the years, um, as I met different people, heard their experiences, their different perspectives, I started, this question started to really gnaw at me. Like, is there more to the story? Is there more than just face value? I know I have found that to be true with all different passages on face value. If I took every verse at face value, I would be wearing head coverings, for example, and I don't. So is there more to this too? And at first I thought, there can't be, right? Like I just have always grown up thinking the Bible is so clear on this, but I discovered Matthew and his work and I thought, oh my goodness, this is a perspective I have never heard growing up. And next week, James and I are actually going to talk about this together, our own journey with this question, what we each believe about this question. But today I am just so excited to have Matthew Vines on the podcast to share some of his study of scripture. Now, this podcast is just going to scratch the surface of how, of the depth uh, that his book goes into, and also two other resources, all of which are linked down below. One is the seven hour video course that you can get online. I'm so pumped about it. I just got access. I can't wait to start going through it. And this book, you know, he published several years ago. So the video course goes into greater depth and talks about some of the counter arguments that people have proposed to this book and some of the feedback he's gotten. The other resource that's actually happening right now today is his annual conference. Um, and it's in Phoenix, Arizona. I have a virtual ticket. It gives me access for 30 days to all the different sessions and their speakers. One I'm really excited about is I believe it's Eugene Peterson's son is sharing why his dad became affirming of um, LGBTQ Christians shortly before he passed away. And so I'm super excited to hear that session and the ones by Jen Hatmaker and some of the other awesome speakers there. So the conference, the book, and the online course are all linked down below. You can check them out. This podcast, like I said, is going to dive deep into some of the scripture, but it just barely scratches the surface of all the resources he has. So I want to encourage you to really listen with an open mind to just ask the question, could there be a case, for, could there be a biblical case for same-sex relationships? And, and the first part of this episode is going to focus on Matthew and his own story and experiences. And I don't want you to tune out during that. It's so important to hear from him. But the second half, we are diving in. We're going to talk about the historical context, the original words and the language, the biblical context. We're going to get into all of that. Again, just scratching the surface. So don't tune out in the first half of the episode. Stick around. It's really, really good. Quick bio. Matthew is the founder of the Reformation Project, a Bible-based nonprofit organization that seeks to reform church teaching on sexual orientation and gender identity. His work has been featured in media worldwide, including USA Today and the New York Times. And he lives in Kansas. He's actually, this is the first episode, I, the first interview I filmed when I said I want to do this podcast. He was the first person I thought of. And when he said yes, I could not believe it. I was fangirling so much. So check this out. Matthew Vines, I am so excited to have you on my podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for taking time. Hi. Absolutely. Hi, Guys, Tiffany. I'm... It's very nice to meet you. You too. Guys, I am so excited for you to hear from Matthew from his story. He is somebody who loves God, who loves scripture, and who says, you know what? I am 
believe with all my heart and following God in scripture as I believe it is also okay for Christians to be gay. So we are going to talk about that today. So Matthew, one of the things that I just love about your story is that you are absolutely committed to following Jesus and the Bible to the best of your ability. So when you first realized you were gay, what did you think that it meant to follow Jesus with your sexuality? Yeah, it's a good question. I think my story is actually a little bit different than a lot of people's in that I was able to successfully suppress my awareness of my sexual orientation until I had already <laughs> worked through this conversation at an impersonal level. Wow. Because I, and I don't think I ever could have acknowledged that about myself without having already worked through all of that. Uh, mm. So by the time I, you know, I grew up in a Christian home in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, we went to a conservative Presbyterian church. I asked Jesus into my heart when I was three years old for the first time. Mm. And then, you know, did it. You for know, the about, first time. <laughs> well, I did, you know, did it on an annual basis for the next 10 years. Yes. <laughs> just just to make yes, sure I, that it, that I it stuck. You. Right. You know, there's no harm, right? Uh, <laughs> exactly. And, no, but from the very beginning, I feel like um, I my parents modeled their Christian faith for me in a really beautiful way that just made it really naturally appealing that, yes, of course, this is mm -hmm. how I want to order my life. Of course, I want Jesus at the very center of, of everything in my life. I saw how that mm -hmm. made them like kinder, more generous, loving people. And so that was just a beautiful and inspiring example for me. So for, from the very beginning, from as early as I really have much consciousness, you know, my faith in Jesus has been that cornerstone of, of my whole life. So um, that is so cool. By the time then, and I didn't really have like, you know, traumatic church experiences or anything. Yeah, obviously, we can all uh -huh. look back and see, well, this would have, it would have been nice if this had been different or this was in fact painful and hard. But overall, it's not uh -huh. like I was like, oh, and I grew up in this this fundamentalist cult where everybody was, you know, no, it, it was like, it was a, right, right. it was a conservative church. And there are certain things where I, I do think, you know, that, well, this could or should have been different, but overall it was mm -hmm. a church full of people who loved Jesus and who loved the Bible and who were really committed to passing that on to the next generation. And I have a lot of respect and appreciation for that. So, um, by the time that I was in middle school and high school, I started to become aware of the fact that there were gay people, which I was not aware of, of mm. before. And <laughs> my my first thought, because I did I did theater, and so that's where I met some some gay people originally. And my first thought, what I told my mom in sixth or seventh grade, I just when I realized that there were people who were gay, even though I don't remember having heard anything about it in church, I also knew that they would not be welcome at our church. And so mm. I told her, I said, "Well, I'm just kind of sad that I feel like." they wouldn't be welcome at our church. And my mom said, well, it's just like anything else, as long as they're willing to you know, change their lifestyle, then they would be welcome. And I said, I know, it just still doesn't feel like that's very welcoming. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but you know, I just kind of, you know, I, you know, it was what it was, the church's position is what it is. And it, so I just mm -hmm. thought, well, how can I be more loving sort of thing? But mm -hmm. by the time then that I went to college, um, you know, I was living in a state where same-sex marriage had been legalized and Mm. the where openly LGBTQ people were just a normal part of the community and of and you got to see how oh the way that I had experienced it before was you know this is not something that a normal respected person could do or be and so mm. it's easier to then kind of have this uh I don't know to kind of say well you know we're Christians 
And so we have these beliefs. And yes, there are some people who have these other beliefs, but they're very different in all these other ways. And so mm. there's just these natural dividing lines that help you feel, you can, right. still, be, you can still be kind, but there are these natural dividing uh-huh. lines that help you feel more comfortable in holding on to your, your position. But sure. it wasn't just that I saw, oh, wow, like it, it was a, it's almost like you're living in a different world where it used to be that this was just an abstract idea and almost like a political right. football. It's just like an issue, not actually, you're not actually thinking about people's lives and stories. But I also was right. just seeing an incredible amount of pain and a hurt and mm-hmm. rejection from LGBTQ people who had been kicked out of their Christian homes who had been wow. just horribly uh, mistreated and excluded from their churches purely on the basis of acknowledging that they were gay, um, not mm-hmm. on the basis of promiscuous behavior or anything like that, purely on the basis of just having a different sexual orientation. Um, mm. And I was just heartbroken by that, especially because increasingly I saw that, okay, I had this really positive experience of coming to faith, but... So many other right. people I was meeting who did not come from a similar background, their impression of Christianity was terrible. And mm. and this was really sad to me that a lot of people, yeah. because their impression of it was just rooted in what they had seen, what they had experienced culturally. or And for them, Jesus was kind of synonymous with, uh, like, people still often recognize that Jesus had good teachings, but Christianity in particular, and Jesus somewhat, was were synonymous with... Uh, the mistreatment and rejection of their friends who just for being mm-hmm. different. And I thought like, oh, this right. feels so topsy-turvy because if anything, that's, an, that's a very Christian impulse that you have this desire, right, to go find the one lost sheep and bring them back. You have this desire to find, right, the one lost coin that you right. want to, that you, that you care so much about people who are on the margins, who are being mistreated, uh, if anything, I was like, that's the reason you, you should want to follow Jesus. And so what a weird, uh, what a weird place that we're in where that's the, where I feel like people are rejecting Christianity for actually, in many cases, deeply Christian reasons. I was like, no, this is not right. <laughs> like, right, this, right. So um, all of this to say, I, I felt I ended up feeling a great amount of cognitive dissonance over this because I just thought this is not the way this is just the way that we're treating people does not seem at all the way that I was taught every anything I've been taught about Jesus, who he was, how he mm. lived, how he treated people, his teachings. This all just seems so at odds. And I don't understand all the biblical passages involved here, but something here seems very off. <laughs> something here seems mm. very wrong. And also the church's the church's position just seemed to be causing an incredible amount of bad fruit. Um in, yeah. in the lives so of people. So this whole time, you're not you're, you're not even thinking about your sexuality. This is all before no. that. Wow. Yes. Okay. Now I could have, and a lot of people are like, "How could you do that? Right? Isn't it obvious?" Well, the thing is, it, it, it's only obvious if you allow it to be obvious. But for me, I think you also, you know, you've never been anybody you aren't. So it's not that you're not aware that you might sometimes have feelings that you realize need to be suppressed. But you also have mm-hmm. no reason to know, well, maybe everybody's doing that, you know? Like, maybe maybe it's right. like an effort for everyone <laughs> to, to be... That totally makes sense, To be right. straight. And it doesn't really make right. sense, but it's like you don't have any <laughs> false... You can't falsify that. You don't know what other people's experience uh-huh. really is. Um, but for the most part, I also, I couldn't handle acknowledging that. That would have just mm-hmm. everything... I couldn't handle it. And so if you can't handle it, you can rationalize all kinds of things. <laughs> and... Totally. And kind of, yeah. you know, so I, I rationalized plenty of things. Um, but no, I got to the point where then my, you know, I, I went to certainly uh, much more, you know, I went off to 
to uh, the East Coast for college where things were just much more open than they were in Kansas. Uh-huh. But I still joined a conservative Christian ministry when I got to college because I wanted to find, uh, you know, I wanted my faith to still be nurtured and supported with a Christian community. And so that's where I ended up then connecting with some other students in the group who were having some similar questions that I was feeling similar mm. tension around the church's posture and position on LGBTQ people. And so I did a, I did a study, a biblical study with some other kids in the group my freshman year at college. And I got to the point where I felt like, okay, this is less black and white than I had thought it was. And this seems mm-hmm. to me, I was like, I also don't understand every, every word of every biblical passage about slavery, but I just know it's wrong. Like I know <laughs> slavery is wrong. And right. so I don't like, yes, I would love to learn more about that biblically, but I don't feel constrained from being able to say this is wrong until I have mm-hmm. understood every Greek word involved. Um, this gotcha. just seems to me mm-hmm. so obviously opposed to who Jesus was and everything that he stood for, that mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense to me with, you know, the slavery issue. It doesn't make sense to me to say, well, you, you know, you need to do five years of seminary study before you can actually take a position on it. I'm just like, right, no. Right. And I also know that there are, you know, so, so I kind of felt similarly about this where I just felt like, oh my goodness, like the harm that we're doing to people is so horrible. Like the, the way mm-hmm. that this is in many cases, destroying people's lives, leading people to take their own lives, just destroying people's relationship with God, having such a damaging impact on people's perception of who Jesus is in a way that makes people, I think, completely misperceive him as like somebody Mm -hmm. who was a part of, uh, you know, as basically the bully rather than the protector and defender of people. I just thought this is all wrong. This cannot be true. Like, and I just believe in Jesus and I believe in the Bible too much to, believe, to accept that that, ab- that that must be correct. Like something about here just seems uh-huh. off. And so I thought, okay, I've studied this enough. I still don't understand everything, but I just feel like this, uh-huh. can't, this can't be, this just can't be right. This just can't be right. And so I began You're to feel seeing like, like the fruit of it. Yeah. Yes. And so in I, people's I, I, lives, right. I just began to feel like this was an issue of, uh, you know, I, before I take in a, a stance of, well, I don't know whether I think it's a sin or not, but I do know we should be loving. And that's certainly good. Mm-hmm. But then eventually mm-hmm. I thought, no, I think even this posture of saying that being LGBTQ or that being in a same-sex relationship, period, is a sin. Uh, no, I just, I, I don't think that this makes any sense with anything else that I've ever learned about Jesus and about Christianity mm-hmm. and about the Bible. And so I think this is an issue of, of justice and human dignity. And this is something that's really important for the church to, to reconsider because... I think there are many more fundamental, like the things that are most important in Christianity about who Jesus was, uh, about, you know, his atoning death, his his reconciling us to God, his resurrection, Uh the Bible is the word of God, us being able to be part of the body of Christ, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Like how, if you're overshadowing all these things for something that seems that totally inconsistent with the message of Jesus. I just thought, no, 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 this can't be. So I then became very passionate about the church needs to do better on this. And only six months later, once I became really passionate about it for other people, then I finally had the room to start asking whether or not that might also apply to me. And I thought, oh no, I don't want to deal with that. Uh-huh. I would much, I would much prefer to just add support other people. I don't want to go through this, but I realized, okay, <laughs> that obviously is true of me. And so I, I, I guess I need to, to deal with it. But I also thought, well, this is an opportunity because I really did I knew how much I had wanted better under a better understanding of scripture on this topic? And uh-huh. I thought, well, yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, I thought, yeah, well, I'm in like a great I know, position as, now. yeah, 
Sorry, let me interrupt you. No, you go. <laughs> I always do this. <laughs> um, but I was going to say, as you're talking here, I think like um, a lot of the arguments I've heard are like, well, if we just stop at the whole, it doesn't seem right, or even the fruit of things, then we're kind of throwing out the Bible. And you didn't stop there. You were like, okay, this doesn't feel right. I feel like this is not right. But you, can you tell us about like, I just love your approach to scripture. And like, could you tell us about that and like where this led you? Yeah, no, I mean, and that's, I, you know, I really love the Bible. I always have from when I was eight years old, you know, I was going to adult Sunday school, um, just you know, and sitting in the front row for our, you know, Route 66 annual class that year of like going through all 66 <laughs> books in the Bible. That's awesome. And I mean, the Route Bible's, 66. Yeah, the Bible is, the Bible's incredible. And I just, I also felt like it was getting a bad rap. <laughs> um, mm, uh-huh. And a lot of people were developing very negative views of the Bible for reasons that I thought were probably not necessarily fair to the Bible, um, uh-huh. but they were understandable sure. given the messages that they were receiving. And so for me, I also, yes, as much as in the same way that I felt like, okay, I understand every word of the Bible on slavery, but I still want to. Right. I want to. Uh-huh. Um, sure. Like, I right, want right. to, like, you know, I, I want to study all of these topics at some point throughout my life because I want to come to a deeper, better understanding of scripture to be able to, in many ways, to help other people understand it better and to remove potential stumbling blocks to people to, from coming to know yeah. Jesus. So, sure. um, but I also just really, cause I was just like, no, I really believe in the Bible as the word of God. And I also, this seems so at odds with it. This just, these things can't be, but I, I got, I have to understand. I have to learn more. Right. And right. Fortunately, you know, this was by this point, this was, you know, 2009, 2010. And so this conversation in many ways, you know, had been happening certainly in the academic world for decades um, and in more uh-huh. progressive churches, you know, the, you know, in more in, in a lot of mainline churches, this conversation had been happening for a while. So there were resources that were out there. The problem was that I couldn't find any resources that were really tailored to people like me and the church that I came from. We were really committed mm-hmm. to having a high view of scripture and its authority. So it was mm-hmm. too often where, mm-hmm. you know, you'd find a, a book that had some useful information in it, but then it would turn around and kind of make some wise crack about the Bible. And I thought, oh, that's not, this is not the time for that, right? This is not supposed to be mm-hmm. our, our stand-up hour. Um, so it's, uh, <laughs> you, you know, especially if I'm thinking about, oh, I want, because I was having conversations with my parents about this even before I came out to them, where I was trying to, you know, gently challenge where they were coming from in this, ask them to be looking at it from a different perspective. And mm-hmm. I wanted to find good resources, but I found resources that said things that sounded irreverent or disrespectful towards scripture. I'm like, I'm not sharing that. Mm-hmm. Like, right, I, right. I, I, I find that, you know, offensive. I'm pretty sure my parents right. will find, you know, like that's not, that's so yeah. I really wanted to find uh, resources that I felt like were accessible, that had a high view of scripture's authority and that could be shared without having needlessly alienating things in them. So in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, once I came out, that's what I set out to do. I thought, oh, I know this mm-hmm. is, so, I know there are so many people in the church, not just LGBTQ people, but just Christians in general who have been having similar questions, similar doubts and similar, right? Um, yeah, similar like concerns. wrestling with. Yes. Yeah. And, but mm-hmm. have also felt like this has been a really missing piece for them and trying to, trying to piece all this together. 
really wanting mm-hmm. to understand scripture better, not accepting the idea that you just are supposed to say that scripture is now outdated, bad or wrong. Um, right. And, but also, yeah, just wanting to figure out how, what is the best understanding of, of, of the, some of these passages? So that's yeah. really kind of what I set out to do ever since then. And then in almost 10 years ago now, I, di- I gave a talk at my, uh, at, not at my church, it was at a different church in my hometown of Wichita, Kansas, about the Bible and same-sex relationships. Yeah, and that, and that went uh-huh. viral. And then that led to me writing a book that came out a couple years later. Um, yes. Okay, yeah. Matthew wrote this book. It's called God and the Gay Christian, The Biblical Case in Support of Same-Sex Relationships. I'm realizing because I'm using my FaceTime camera, it's like looking in a mirror. But this book is fantastic. And one of the things I just love about your book and your ministry is that your heart is to honor scripture. Like you said, you're not trying to explain anything away or find the convenient answer. You like want to honor scripture's intent. So you've done some amazing research like into this issue. And I mean, honestly, this book is one of the best Bible studies I've read. Like, well, thank just you. Period. Yeah. It was, it's like, you're looking at other, the context and the cultural context, the historical, the verses, like just, it was amazing. So I, I was wondering, could you, you're, could you tell us a little bit about this book as I think you're about to do? Yeah. I mean, so really the, the goal of the book was similar to my original video. When I actually gave that first speech, I had no, I no intention of writing a book. It just kind of then naturally grew out of it because that video spawned many dozens of rebuttals and responses and things like that. Mm, uh, of course, uh-huh. I, I read all of them. People say, don't read the comments. I read all the comments because like, I actually, <laughs> I, I don't mind like, you know, sure. You can sometimes find unnecessary negativity, but oftentimes the negativity is just a different perspective. And, mm. and so if people are expressing that perspective, it takes a lot of humility to do that. <laughs> well, if people are expressing that perspective in a respectful way, I'm all for, you know, right, consi- right. considering and engaging and all of that. Um, so I did appreciate, you know, reading all the dozens of responses and then, you know, it just kind of, I wasn't able to include all the footnotes in my original, you know, speech. And so then a a book was kind of, but I really, with the book, I wanted to write the book that I wish I had had to be able to give to my parents when Mm. I came out to them. So Mm. my parents, when I came out to them, they were not originally affirming. My dad actually, uh, in particular was hopeful that I would be willing to try to change my sexual orientation. Um, but mm. I give them so much credit. I mean, they have now completely changed their minds on this. They're awesome. Wow. They've always been awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but I give, right, right. I give them a lot of credit because my dad in particular, like, I mean, cause this was, he had more of the concern around sexual orientation change efforts. Uh, but he mm-hmm. was, he was open-minded at every point. So he definitely had a strong opinion, a strong view, but he was still willing to consider my perspective, even though he didn't agree with it and didn't think he would agree with it. Um, but mm, he didn't, wow. actually, but he hadn't known any openly gay people before I came out to him. And so I remember my husband saying that he's like, i never knew any people who were gay and were truly dedicated Christians. Like I just yeah. didn't know. I didn't know that. Well, yeah. Much less. He didn't know any openly gay Christians. He didn't even know any openly gay people before I came out. Oh, at him. all. Oh, no. wow. Okay. I mean, cause he, <laughs> wow. grew up, he grew up in a different time and you know, in Kansas right, right. and it's just, it was like things uh-huh. have changed a lot in our culture and society just in the last sure. 10 to 20 years. 
And I think we can often forget the speed at which things have changed. Right. But yeah. so ultimately then he, you know, we, we, we did some research on, we read some books from ex-gay ministries themselves. And he was disappointed because he felt like what was inside the book was not the same. It was what was on the cover. The cover made it sound like it was huh. like this orientation change. And then inside the book, most of the stories were about people who changed bad behaviors, whether those were involving mm. drug addiction, abuse, promiscuity, and then they moved away from all those things and then were just abstinent or celibate. And it was a positive change, as one would expect. Um, but he, mm. he realized that wasn't my situation at all. Um, you right, know, from right. as early as I learned about sexuality, I have believed in saving sex for marriage. And I mm -hmm. still do, even though that's not necessarily the most popular position. No, that's the single sure. most popular view you could have today in our country. No, it's not. Um, <laughs> But, yes. but no, I absolutely believe, you know, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. I want to honor that. I want to honor God through how mm -hmm. I use my body. And so that's uh, all of that. So my situation is just very different from the kind of more difficult situations that were described in a lot of these ministries and books. So ultimately, my dad began to realize they weren't even really describing a change in orientation. It was just a change in behaviors mm. and behaviors that I wasn't even dealing with. So mm, ultimately, then yeah. we, he, he then we then st started studying the scripture passages together. And through that process, he was actually hoping that I would change my mind. Um, but he ended up changing. Mm. His, but he ended up changing his mind. And <laughs> wow. so I think that's also been a very great, helpful example to me in, in really realizing that a lot of people can change their minds and that we shouldn't just mm -hmm. write people off because they disagree with us. Um, and mm -hmm. that I think there's, a, with this particular topic, you typically need a combination of two things. One is a, a, a transformative relationship with somebody who is LGBTQ uh, and typically mm -hmm. also a Christian. It helps a lot for mm -hmm. people just to change their whole paradigm for how they're thinking about right. what we're even talking about. But right, right. secondly, you also need a strong biblical case and that theological right. engagement to help people be able to figure out what could it look like to still be holding on to scripture as our authority that, yeah. and to, is, is there a, a better way to understand some of these passages? So that, that was is my, what your book did for me. Yeah. yeah that's well, what I was looking for. And I couldn't find it anywhere until I found your book and your ministry. And well, I that's like, why oh I wrote gosh. it. That's, yeah, that's, that's it was why amazing. I, that's why I wrote it. So, uh, yeah, I, I wrote it because I wanted it in particular to be able to be a book that people could give to their parents when they came out to them. But also mm, just for, okay, any, yeah. for any Christian who has been yeah. wrestling through these questions. It is. It is thorough. In your book, like, you break down. I feel like you just answered all my questions. I'd be like, well, what about this? In the back of my head, and then, like, two chapters later, I'm like, oh, okay, deep dive into that question. Like, every biblical reference about homosexuality every like studying the culture of the time studying what biblical marriage looks like like you just like dive into it all like guys i am talking like dive into it like this is not a surface like oh well we can say it this way this is like you're looking at the language you're looking at like it's amazing so one i'd say well if i'm not pushing us too far forward here no go um ahead. okay one of the big ideas at the beginning of the book just kind of like setting giving us some perspective as we're looking at the historical context of scripture. One of the big ideas you talk about that stuck out to me and my husband is that um, the biblical references to homosexuality, we're talking about something very different from the gay committed relationships that we see today. So I was wondering, like, could you talk to us about 
an- sexuality in ancient culture. Because I think yeah. when we read scripture, we have we have a completely different paradigm of what that was than what the readers of scripture would have had. For sure. And this is an area where I'm grateful that I'm alive when I am because there's been so much. Me too as a woman, yeah. There's been so much. Yeah, you, oh my gosh, yeah. yeah. There's been so much scholarship (laughs) that's been done since the 1970s on the history of sexuality in general, even going beyond scripture. So it's not just that Mm -hmm. the biblical references to same-sex behavior are coming, if we look at them, that the, the context seems very different. It's that any ancient references to same-sex behavior um, are coming mm-hmm. in a very different context. The entire... Right. So you've kind of got three main practices, three main forms of same-sex behavior that were by far the most common in the ancient world, specifically ancient Greece and Rome, uh, which provided a significant part of the backdrop, especially for the New Testament. Uh, and that is pederasty, which is this, like... I, we can't even believe. I had never heard of that before your book, and it sounds so gross. Yeah, it, it's really messed up. And so it's a it's a where you've got a sexual relationship between an adult man and an adolescent boy. Uh, this was particularly popular in ancient Greece, um, and it was still practiced in ancient Rome, but a little bit diff- a little bit different, structured in different ways. Um, but it was not, I mean, it was the men who were engaging in this were typically married to women or they would soon be married to women. It was a relationship that was only supposed to last until the boy developed a beard and then it's supposed to stop. Um, it, it's just, it, it, it's really not. So it's, it's something not. that you would be in jail for today. It sounds like. Yeah. yeah and you should be. So that's, uh, that was, I mean, that's its thing. Now, but the people pointed out right, right. it wasn't all pederasty. Also, another very common form of same-sex behavior in the ancient world was prostitution. So sex mm-hmm. with men who were prostitutes. Um, mm-hmm. Typically, these are, well, not even typically. These are not, you know, long-term <laughs> loving relationships. This right. is, you know, just kind of an additional outlet for lustful self-gratification on the part of men mm-hmm. who are, in most cases, married to women. Uh, mm-hmm. another common form, this was particularly common in ancient Rome was sex with people who were enslaved. So, mm-hmm. um, for a, you know, a Roman man who was the head of a head of a household, he could, the wife, uh, if she had sex with anyone other than her husband, it was adultery, but the husband can have sex <laughs> with concubines, with ins- wow. people he's enslaved, both male and female. And no, it's not adultery. Wow. Prostitutes, not adultery. It is adultery if he has sex with another man's wife or another man's concubine because it was seen as a property violation, which is also just Mm -hmm. no. So, yeah, all of those things, like today, we'd be like, what are you doing? You can't do this. Right. Yeah. And so, if I mean, there are various, you know, there's, I wonder if I have it on hand here, but uh, there's a a book called, uh, well, you know what? I won't. There's there's a book called (laughs) Rope. There's a book. There's a book called Roman Homosexuality. Oh, I do. I have them all up there. I'm just gonna. I'm okay. So, I love that you have this library. He was showing me other book resources before we even started. This book, Roman okay. Homosexuality by Craig Williams, uh-huh. is this fascinating. Uh, it's really kind of the the leading book on same sex behavior in ancient Rome. And wow, is it disturbing. Um, so wow. if you read it, you're, you're in for quite the trip, but you also realize, I mean, it's just fundamentally different. And one thing that Craig Williams talks about in this book, he says that it seems as though Roman men had this limitless sexual freedom. Like they could, they could just have sex with anybody and get away with it. But no, there uh-huh. were actually really strict boundaries on it. It's just very different boundaries. And the key boundaries were mm-hmm. that every sexual act was supposed to mirror 
the broader status the broader sta- the broader status hierarchies in society. So mm-hmm. that's why a man can have sex with an adolescent boy. A man can have sex with a prostitute who's not seen as a citizen. With a man can have sex with somebody who's enslaved. There's this clear status differential. But Williams talks wow. about, and this is widely accepted among historians of sexuality, a man cannot have sex or have a lasting reciprocal relationship with another freeborn male because there is no clear hierarchy between the partners. And in a world Mm. that is defined by the subjugation of women to men, it's not just same-sex behavior that's supposed to be hierarchical in nature. It's all sexual behavior that's supposed to be hierarchical in nature. Even marriage relationships are premised on the superiority of the man to the woman. And that's why in ancient Rome, the men, it wasn't just that men as a gender were seen as superior to women. But the average age when a man got married was about 30, whereas the average age for a woman was like 16. <laughs> so wow. you also wow. have this massive power differential built into the age of the partners when they're getting right. married, in addition to just this, the cultural superiority and status of, of men to women. So yeah. you need that. This is the problem with you can't have equal status, same sex relationships in the ancient world because you can't have equal status relationships period and that's right. why when you had societies that did accept various forms of same-sex behavior they could only accept forms of same-sex behavior that had this clear status differential between the partners um so, so interesting yeah and even sometimes what people will try to bring up various examples of times where oh well that wasn't quite the case i mean but even the exceptions kind of just reinforce the rule so you know, you've got one exception that sometimes is brought up where in Plato's symposium, you have this couple that was a pederastic couple. There's, I think, like a 20 year age gap between them, but they stayed together even after the younger partner matured. Um, that mm-hmm. was very atypical. The younger partner in particular was pilloried for this, made great fun of for this because this was so unmanly and, and not the way to do things. But the relationship wow. still started when he was a teenager. It still started as a pederastic mm-hmm. relationship. You know, we're not going to, uh, that still is rather different than what we're talking about today. And even, right. even once he matured, it was still seen as a hierarchical structure of the relationship. That's the only way that it could even be conceived of. So even sometimes in the rare instances where it's like, oh, well, these are two adults, you've still got like, okay, there's still something going on in the dynamics here that distinguishes this from what we're talking about today in a rather fundamental way. Mm. So all that mm-hmm. to say... Even though certainly you can find, I'd say ancient Greece and Rome in general did have a high level of tolerance for same-sex behavior that fit these hierarchical norms, uh, there, uh-huh. were, there were more conservative moralists in, both, in, in all of these societies that just took a dimmer view of same-sex relations in general because they saw it as an excess of desire, lust without self-control, just kind of lust run amok. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. honestly, that's really what it accurately could be described as in so many of these instances. Mm-hmm. You've got men who are married to women right. who are on the side are pursuing all these additional outlets for self-gratification. So for the, uh-huh. early, the early Christians then came along and reinforced the Jewish ethic at the time, but then right as they're including all the Gentiles in this, said actually no, mm-hmm. uh, sex should not be just for pleasure. It should not just be casual. It should certainly not be for expressing your status and your power over mm-hmm. others, sex should be the sign and seal of a lifelong covenant in marriage. That is a mm-hmm. radical reordering of sexual ethics. And when you, re- when, so the early Christians, when they then restricted sex to marriage, of course, everything outside of that, same sex relations are no longer allowed in the same way that any heterosexual mm-hmm. promiscuity is no longer allowed. The very concept of same sex marriage, that structure, that possibility was not remotely on the radar for anyone in the ancient world. And so mm-hmm. Paul's rejection, for instance, of same-sex behavior in Romans 1 is 
yeah. part and parcel of the early Christian rejection of sex outside of marriage, period. Uh, now, there were mm-hmm. additional problems, additional issues that came along when it came to same-sex behavior. Um, so Plato first called same-sex relations unnatural in, the, in his 4th century BC dialogue laws. And so by the time of Paul in the 1st century, this was kind of a common shorthand reference to for same-sex mm-hmm. relations among moralists who opposed it. Um, but the primary reference in that description, which, you know, and you can go back to other writers and see what they were talking about, was to the subversion of patriarchal gender roles. That when you've got mm. a society that's supposed that to be That was defined, what the unnatural was referring to. That you've got a society that's supposed to be defined the- by the dominance of men over women. Uh, then if you uh-huh. have two men or two women um, having sex with one another, then the concern is that this is subverting that obvious kind of hierarchy between the two. It is unnatural for a man specifically mm. to take the quote-unquote woman's role and specifically unnatural for a woman Mm. to take the quote-unquote man's role in sex it's a very hierarchical way of looking at things um but that Mm. we can certainly recognize that that was the reality of cultural gender norms and gender roles in the first century but likewise paul in first corinthians 11 says that nature itself teaches that it is it is shameful for a man to have long hair um, but Mm. honorable for a woman and most christians will look at that and say okay well Yes, we can acknowledge that that was the cultural context and the, and the cultural norms of his day, but that it was also culturally specific and culturally limited. And it's certainly right, true right. that the, it's the same Greek word, phusis, for nature in 1 Corinthians 11 and Romans 1. And we can certainly acknowledge mm-hmm. that um, in, Rome, in 1 Corinthians 11, nobody has a problem acknowledging that phusis has a wide range of meaning that can include social conventions. Um, and in fact, mm-hmm. he also uses this, the phrase, the Greek word atomia, meaning shameful, in 1 Corinthians 11, same word that he uses in Romans 1 to talk about God gave them over to shame, right? When he talks about the shameful acts that they're committing, indecent acts with one another. Mm, uh And so if we all accept that Paul is using these same words in a culturally specific sense in 1 Corinthians 11, should we at least not be willing to consider the possibility of a culturally specific meaning of those words, of the same words by the same author in Romans 1? And I think when we actually Mm. look at how those words were used by other authors around the time of Paul, we see that there are very culturally specific elements that shape those terms meaning the primary one Mm -hmm. being these patriarchal gender roles so then we have to ask a broader question which is what is the overall trajectory of scripture when it comes to gender roles and gender relations of course Mm -hmm. we certainly scripture was written at a very patriarchal time so you're going to see that reflected throughout the old and the new testament the question is are we is that kind of is that should that be ethically normative for christians for all times and all places Or kind of like slavery, where it is something that is certainly present, it was part of the society and you see it reflected and regulated throughout scripture, is that something that therefore we're saying that's God's design, that's God's intent, and that's something we should continue to hold on to? Or do we see a movement away from that, a movement toward um, greater equality and freedom that should lead us Mm. to be moving further in that direction ourselves? So certainly a classic text would be Galatians 3.28 that talks about our baptismal status in Christ that says, you know, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female, neither slave nor free. Now, Paul's primary focus in his day, some people say, well, that's only about our spiritual status. It's not about our social status. And that, that's mm. that's true to an extent. Uh, that is, our spiritual status is certainly the, the focus of Paul in that passage. But it's also true that he made it the primary mission of his of his life to be overcoming the Jew-Gentile distinction in the here and now. Mm. Not just saying it'll be overcome true. in the future. In the 19th century, mm-hmm. Christian abolitionists said we should actually live that out with the slave and free distinction as well. I wish we would have done that much earlier, but I'm very glad that we have done that. 
um, and acknowledge mm-hmm. that yes, yeah. if, if our spiritual, if we have this radical spiritual equality before God, why should we not be reflecting that today? Especially because Christ tells us in Matthew seven, right? To, he tells us to pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. So if that is a blueprint of the kingdom of God, right? If that's a blueprint yeah. of of our status in heaven, then shouldn't we be working for that to come on earth as it is in heaven? And it can also it can also be a wonderful witness to um, God's redemptive purposes and plan for humanity. So I think then that's, I think that we should understand patriarchy in a similar way where you've got, yes, Mm -hmm. certainly patriarchy is a part of the ancient world. You do see it reflected in scripture, but I think you also see the core principles of scripture that are moving us toward ultimately overcoming the hierarchy between men and women in Christ. And if that's the case, then patriarchal norms that are reflected in scripture should be understood in a culturally limited and specific sense rather than in a universally normative sense. So when we Mm -hmm. look at a term like the term against nature in Romans one, and we see the patriarchal import of those, of that word in the ancient world, if we believe that patriarchy is not ultimately normative for Christians, but instead culturally specific, then that has significant implications for how we should understand and apply that passage today. We can still understand um, you know what those terms meant in their day, but also recognize that that should not be on normative for Christian ethics any more than mm. patriarchy overall should be normative for Christian ethics. Wow! I just want to like give you a, an applause right here. <laughs> Thank you, guys. That is just like a small taste of what his book is full of. Like. You need to buy this book. You guys need to buy this book so much. Um, so well, I should probably say just say one more thing about Romans one because I realized okay, I just, sure. I just, I just said a lot about the you know against nature and, and shame part. But, oh right, right, yes, yes. But the other just key point going back to just practices of same sex behavior in antiquity and the common association, especially among more conservative moralists, of same sex behavior just with general excess, uh, lustful desire and excess. So I really think there are, you know, I certainly talk about this. You can even find it on the Reformation Project's website. We have a whole biblical case section on our website, but you can find other first century Greco-Roman moralists who said very similar things to Paul and specifically described same-sex relations as people, as men who are kind of become tired of having sex with women because they've had so much sex with women, then they, uh, you know, so they move on from that in the same way that people are just looking for all kinds of new pleasures. So they're looking for, mm-hmm. you know, they've, then they're looking to spice up whatever food they're eating and drinks that they're having because desire that is purely seeking to satisfy itself will always kind of burn mm-hmm. out. You'll never truly be satisfied. So in that same way that mm-hmm. anybody can become gluttonous, anybody can become a drunkard, Anybody can also just lose self-control when it comes to sex. And a prime example of that for a lot of first century writers was same-sex behavior because that made a lot of sense in their cultural context given the widespread Mm -hmm. practices of same-sex behavior. So I really think when when you look at Paul, what he's talking about in in Romans 1, he talks about men who have, you know, women who have exchanged the natural for the unnatural, men who abandoned natural relations with women to, to exchange and then engage in lustful behavior with other men. They're consumed with their passion one for another. He, in fact, explicitly says in Romans 1, 28 through, 30, through 32, that the people he's describing have no fidelity and no love. So I think mm-hmm. he couldn't, I mean, it's pretty clear. He, he describes these relationships as explicitly lustful behavior, consumed mm-hmm. with lust. That these people, there's no love, there's no faithfulness here. Um, I think that same-sex relations served as a powerful and a, and a useful illustration of kind of just that lack of self-control. When we stop honoring God as the idol as the idol worshippers did in Romans one, God gives us over to our devices, and that kind of just 
when we exchange order for disorder, we then are exchanging honor for shame, giving over to just kind of self-seeking excess, the subversion of what were seen as appropriate gender roles in their day, made same-sex relations an apt illustration, not of, it's not about being gay as opposed, Paul wasn't condemning being gay as opposed to being straight. He was condemning excess mm. as opposed to moderation. And that was mm. a very effective illustration of it at the time. What we have to ask today is, is what we're talking about really the same thing that Paul was talking about? Right. So we can continue to affirm with Paul that sexual behavior should not be motivated by self-seeking lustfulness, that mm. um, sex should not be about what it was in the, for so much of the ancient world, right? It's about the pursuit mm. of of self-seeking pleasure, the pursuit of the, the, you know, exert the demonstration of your status and your power. No, sex should not be about that. Sex should be about self-giving covenantal love. Um, Mm. but we're now in a context where we have a very different model of same sex relationship in our society than was present in any form in the biblical world where sex can actually fulfill and does fulfill that exact same purpose that it does for straight Christian couples. And also, we now have this understanding of sexual orientation that the church didn't mm-hmm. have until recent generations, a concept right. that did not exist at all in the ancient world. There was no understanding that some people were exclusively and permanently attracted to those of the same sex. Instead, same-sex mm-hmm. attraction was often just seen as kind of an add-on for people, not, uh-huh. that, not that everyone experienced, but that it would be common for people to experience in addition to heterosexual attraction and behavior. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's just a very different a very different understanding. And it also means that there's a much higher, uh, there's a much greater consequence to rejecting all same-sex relationships when we recognize that for some people, for gay people, that is, that is what a romantic relationship, that is what that possibility is for them. And right. so if we're right. saying no to all same-sex relationships, including ones that are very different from what Paul is talking about in Romans 1, including ones that mm-hmm. are consistent with the core values that have always been at the heart of the Christian tradition's teachings on marriage and sexuality, then we actually have to tell a minority of people that they need to be single and celibate for life. And while mm-hmm. we certainly, you know, Christianity isn't always easy, but mandating celibacy on a whole group of people is inconsistent with both the Bible's teachings on celibacy. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that he wishes that everyone could be single and celibate like him, but he recognizes not everyone has that gift he talks about it as a gift. Mm-hmm. Jesus talks about it as a gift in Matthew 19 when he says that uh, those who can accept this word of foregoing marriage should, but that not everyone can, and that those who can accept mm-hmm. this should accept it. He talks about three different categories of eunuchs. But both Jesus and Paul recognize that celibacy is a gift that not everyone has. This has been widely affirmed throughout the Christian tradition. And that's why marriage, Paul says, has to be an option because it's better to marry than to burn with passion, which is a more pragmatic mm-hmm. uh, view of marriage than some of the more elevated views we find in texts like Ephesians 5. <laughs> but it's also true. Mm-hmm. Like that's, right. you know, marriage has its elevated things. And it's also, yes, it also helps people to channel their desires in a more responsible way. <laughs> so to, you know, gay people certainly do not all have the gift of celibacy. Um, having the opportunity mm-hmm. of marriage mm-hmm. allows them the very same um, benefits, but also the same responsibility and accountability accountability as everybody else. Um, and so we're just, I think we're in a very different context today and we're asking certain questions that the biblical writers were not asking and that our forebears in the faith until recent generations were not asking either. So, you know, was Romans one Paul's teaching about gay Christians? I don't really know anyone who would argue that it was. I mean, it's, it's, Mm. it's such a different, he's not talking about people who recognize that they're gay and then are, you know, but decided not to pursue lifelong celibacy and instead, you know, got married to someone of the same sex. It's a very different right. context. So the context I, is so I just different. Think yeah. It, yeah. We don't have to, 
be negative on Paul. I really like Paul. Um, to still recognize <laughs> that this is what we're talking about and what Paul was talking about are significantly different. Mm. Wow. Thank you so much. Like this, this is the kind of stuff that I was searching for and just like trying to understand what I thought of this. And th- it's just so good. So I have to go in a few minutes here, yes, but yes. I have, um, just a couple questions I wanted to ask you first. So hopefully this isn't opening too big a can of worms right here at the end of our episode, but, um, do you feel that the same biblical approach also applies to the other sexual orientations within the LGBTQ plus umbrella? Um, we've talked about, you know, the L and the B, but what about right. GTQ plus? Um, yeah. what would you say? So my argument is specifically in favor of monogamous covenantal relationships. So mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what your sexual orientation is. Um, everybody's capable of that. Some people think bisexual means that you, that means you want to be in relationships with multiple people simultaneously. That's not what it means. It just means, you know, mm-hmm. somebody who's bisexual is attracted to both men and women. It doesn't mean that they are, and you can find plenty of straight people who want to be in relationships with multiple people simultaneously. Um, so <laughs> that that's, it's, it's not a sexual orientation specific thing altogether. I think that mm-hmm. uh, monogamy and covenant should continue to be uh, uh an essential part of the church's sexual ethic, that, but that can that can be inclusive of LGBTQ mm-hmm. people. It can be inclusive of same-sex relationships. So, I think that's the so certainly that can include bisexual people. It can include um, like it certainly can include transgender people. Although not all mm-hmm. transgender people would identify as you know gay or bisexual. Um, so, but certainly I, I just don't think that. Uh, you know, I think we have to look, what are the deepest principles of the Bible's teachings about marriage and sexuality? Ultimately, and you know, I get into this more detail in my book, but I think it's ultimately about a self-giving, covenant-keeping relationship that with another person that reflects God's self-giving, covenant-keeping um, union with us and with us and with the mm-hmm. church through Christ. And so any relationship that is able to be modeling that kind of total uh, self-gift to another person rooted in covenant, um, which I think... That's just what a monogamous covenantal relationship at its best <laughs> is. And, mm-hmm. and that's something that LGBTQ people can be included in. It, it can actually help to better witness to God's covenantal love for us mm-hmm. in Christ um, by helping to show people how, you know, how we can all model that in our own lives. So mm-hmm. that's just a little thought Thank about you. That. Yeah, that totally helps. So my last question is just briefly, um, you're doing some amazing work on this topic, helping churches love God, love the Bible and become affirming through the reformation projects. And you guys have a conferences conference coming up next week. So I just, could you just tell us just a little bit about the reformation project and your conference? Yeah. Okay. I'll do, I'll do, I'll make, I'll make it quick. So the reformation project is a nonprofit organization that I started in 2013 and it kind of was also an outgrowth of my own experience in the same way that I knew that I wanted there to be better Bible-based resources that were more accessible. I also wanted there to be more support for people who were seeking to be a voice for greater inclusion in their own churches. So, mm-hmm. because no matter how well you know scripture on this, if you're in a church where people aren't interested in listening, then there's going to be a limit to how many conversations you can really effectively have. Um, so the Reformation Project, we we do have, we have our uh, Reconcile and Reform Conference coming up next week, October 28th through the 30th, which it's going to be in Phoenix, but people can also register online to um, watch it virtually, which will probably be the easiest option for most people, especially this year. 
And especially if you have kids <laughs> like me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and we're also, we also just released a, a new seven hour video curriculum about the Bible and LGBTQ wow. inclusion, which goes in some ways cool. even, even deeper than my book in some respects. Um, because in it, I am so cool. engaging and, and responding to various critiques or counter arguments that have been made in the, is it seven years since my book came out? <laughs> seven, eight, something like that. Uh, wow. Yeah. So I'm really excited about that resource. We have other resources on our website and we have, you know, we have programs for uh, parents in process programs, specifically for Christian parents of LGBTQ children who are trying to figure things out after the child has come out to them. Pastors in process, a program for pastors of churches that are not affirming, but who want to help lead their churches in a more inclusive and affirming direction, but are trying to figure out how to do that in a way that still allows their church to really stay true to scripture, hold on to their high view of scripture's authority, and hold on to the core things that are most important in Orthodox Christian theology. So mm-hmm. um, then we also have a leadership development cohort um, that applications are now open for, which is for people who want to serve as local ambassadors in their community uh, of, of affirming Christians who want to be able to be supportive and guiding others who are working through these questions and really be a model for others of what it looks like to be a Christian who is LGBTQ affirming, who is also still sold out for Jesus, who still passionately believes in what we find in you know the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, right? That Jesus uh-huh. died for our sins, that he was raised bodily from the dead, that the Bible is the inspired and authoritative word of God, that Christianity mm-hmm. is true and that it is something that is worth making the very center of our lives and that we should be inclusive of LGBTQ Christians um, as we are, you know, continuing to live out the mission of the church, right? To be the hands and feet mm-hmm. of Jesus as the body of Christ. So um, if people are interested in, you know, kind of in serving as a local ambassador, wanting to, you know, learn more in that respect too, they should absolutely check that out on our website yes. uh, to, yes. to, to participate in that program. And I'll link the website down below, below this video or podcast, wherever you're listening. Wow. Thank you so much, Matthew, for taking this time to be with us. Again, definitely check out his book and the Reformation Project link below. And I will see you all next week for another episode of Outgrowing the Good Christian Girl. Bye, guys. And thank you, Matthew. Thanks, Tiffany. Oh my goodness, was that not so amazing? I just, again, that just scratches the surface of Matthew's other resources, all three of which are linked in the description below. And I hope that this maybe taught you something new or brought up a perspective you hadn't heard before. I know it definitely did for me. Come back next week. James and I are going to debrief this together. We'll share our own journeys with this question and what our own personal conclusions are, what we believe, and if that's the same or different than each other on this issue. So I love you guys and I'll see you next week. Bye.